This podcast deals with mature themes that are intended for an adult audience. The information in this show could be triggering and cause distress for some viewers. If you feel in distress, please seek out help. Please take care in listening. This is The Relationship Review with Delcy Martin. Welcome back to The Relationship Review. I really want to thank you all for staying with me as I've recently went through a lot of big things. One of these things was the death of my brother, a story I will share with you one day when the time is right. Though it's strange returning to normal as if something major didn't happen to me, It's also nice getting back to helping others through this podcast. Today's episode is about walking with your partner on their mental health journey. I very intentionally chose this title because it can be very hard to know how we can best help our partners when they're struggling with their mental wellness. The place that you need to be is right beside them, walking with them as a support and a witness to their journey. I'm going to be using diagnoses today to outline my episode. I want to give a lot of caution about the use of diagnosis. Diagnosing mental health conditions can be very helpful for some because it can provide a framework of understanding for why they are the way they are. It can give a starting point to tailor treatments and therapy and is an essential element when prescribing medications. Diagnosis does not make you who you are. It's a small element of who you are but it's not the most important thing about you. Diagnosis can be stigmatizing. People make a lot of assumptions about your capabilities. What is most helpful in therapy is understanding what symptoms a person is experiencing. A diagnosis is made up of clusters of symptoms, but they must fit within a diagnostic framework. In this case, the DSM-5. As a therapist, I'm able to help someone and design a treatment plan by knowing what symptoms they're experiencing. No label or diagnosis needed all the time. For the purposes of organizing this episode, I'm using diagnostic labels from the DSM-5, but I want you to pay more attention to the symptoms in general that I'm talking about, rather than getting caught up in a diagnostic label. People can and will likely present with symptoms from different diagnostic categories, most notably a pairing with anxiety and depression. There'll also be variations within each symptom category. For example, there's many different diagnoses under the anxiety disorders category. Each diagnosis has symptoms in common, but there's very big differences between them with differences in how they're treated. Writing this episode to give information in a general way is very challenging because people don't fit into boxes. So please take what serves you best from this episode. Let's begin with a case study. Kathy, age 30, has just had her second child, who's now six months old. Her oldest is three. She shared that she's having difficulty sleeping and she feels tired all the time. She very often forgets to eat and is losing weight as a result. She finds herself very irritable, often breaking out into rages when overstimulated by sound. She's lost interest in the things she enjoyed pre-baby and feels that she's losing connection with her husband, Pat, who's 38. 
Pat shared that he's very worried about Kathy and that she doesn't seem happy anymore. He finds that she's more withdrawn and is easily angered. He tries his best to be patient with her, but finds her excessive negativity frustrating. He feels that she needs help, but he isn't sure how best to help her. Let's dive in. Being the partner of someone who's struggling with their mental health is really tough. The challenges usually begin early in the relationship and are consistent with time throughout. Caregiver burnout is a very real thing, and it's something we'll dedicate some time to at the end of this episode. I want you to keep this thought with you throughout this episode. Being partnered with someone with mental health challenges adds extra challenge to the relationship. Yes. But in these individuals, you'll find so many other qualities, loyalty, self-sacrifice, and a profound love for you. When we love someone, we accept them for their whole selves. We accept that we walk together and help each other equally in our struggles. Kathy's symptoms suggest a diagnosis of postpartum depression. PPD falls under depressive orders and disorders in the DSM-5. Postpartum depression is characterized by an onset of depression symptoms occurring after the birth of your child, but with a lengthy enough period after that it's not attributed to hormonal changes resulting from what we call the baby blues. Depression is characterized by low mood, hopelessness, helplessness, change in sleep, either up or down, change in appetite, again, either up or down, slowed speech, lots of other symptoms too. Those with depression may isolate themselves or reduce contact with you. Some compulsively throw themselves into hobbies as a distraction technique. It's very tempting to say things like, stop being a Debbie Downer, or you're always so negative, or why can't you ever be happy? From your perspective, this is what you're seeing. I get that. Pat's frustration that he has with Kathy's negativity is absolutely valid. However, from your depressed partner's perspective, they're likely unaware that this is the face that they're showing the world, or they really just don't have the energy to experience joy on the same level that you do. Comments like this bring up the guilt emotion, which is toxic to someone who's depressed. I recommend that you approach your partner and talk factually about the things you've noticed about them. For example, I noticed that you've been withdrawn to your bedroom more, or I noticed that you've been eating less. This will help the healthy bits of their brain to notice the differences. It's very powerful to tell them how their behavior has been affecting you, but try not to do this in an accusatory way. You could say, it hurts me to see you this way and I can't help you and I want to. If your spouse is reacting to you negatively, it's very hard not to respond in the same way. If they're constantly surrounded by a cloud of negativity, it's very hard for that not to bleed into your internal world. Your partner's behavior is not who they truly are at their core. It's really the depression talking. Think about your partner at their best. Remember when they're showing their personality, their true personality, that you love the strongest. And when you feel you have the deepest connection with your partner, this is your partner. The version you see of them when their behaviors are showing 
is really the depression talking. It's hurtful to hear your partner using self-deprecating statements, and it might make you wonder, are they just looking for attention? No, they aren't looking for attention. They're dysregulated and they're in need of validation. Dysregulated just means that they're upset, they're feeling out of sorts, they're having trouble getting their emotions under control. When we, as ad- when we are adults, we co-regulate with our intimate partners. Part of your role as a romantic partner is to give your partner love and validation when they're hurting. The more validation you give your partner doesn't mean you're spoiling them and it doesn't make them ask for more. In fact, I would argue that the more validation you give to your loved one, especially if it's without them asking, the less that they're going to feel a need to seek it or demand it from you. Increased life stress does play a causal role in depression, but often those with depression unknowingly behave in ways that can increase life stress. If they're having trouble eating, sleeping, or keeping appointments, it can be really helpful to give them reminders. But try and avoid stepping into a parental role with them, as this can feel condescending. If they've withdrawn from people, it can be helpful to give them a bit of a nudge. As long as Kathy is willing to work on her depression, Pat can be an amazing ally for her. I've had postpartum depression twice, and I found my husband to be an essential support person. I remember my husband and I had a conversation once where I said to him, Uh, When I'm depressed, what is most helpful is to just let me vent, tell me you love me, tell me you're here for me, and give me a hug. So when I'm at my worst, this is what he does. And it's incredible, and it really helps. I remember once when I was really, really low, I said to him, I wish that I could be half the parent that you are. And I remember he replied to me, you absolutely are the parent that I am. You have to jump over the hurdles of exhaustion and depression when I don't have to. And that's a lot of extra for you. Oh, man. He understood. He under, he got it. And the wave of relief in me was absolutely incredible. Sometimes you don't need words. When someone is depressed, one of your most powerful tools is holding space for them. Physically touch your partner provided that's okay with them. Holding hands, putting your arm around them. You can say, I see you're hurting. I love you and I'm here for you. And just be present with them. More often than not, they don't want advice. They don't want you to fix it. They just want you to validate their emotions and their experience. Humans have energy and being in the same physical space as your loved one if you're projecting loving and non-judgmental energy, it has a massive healing effect on their energy. Along with encouraging his partner to seek help, this is actually one of the best pieces of advice I could give Pat. Anxiety and depression go hand in hand and both equally contribute to marital distress. It would be unsurprising to me if Kathy also presented to cor- with comorbid symptoms of anxiety. Anxiety disorders come in many forms. Anxiety is very much on a spectrum. It's variable and its intensity changes from person to person, but it can even change within the person day by day, sometimes hour by hour. In general though, anxiety is characterized by physical symptoms, 
racing heart, tight chest, labored breathing, racing thoughts, tingling in your body and your extremities, and just a general sense of arousal. Mentally, it's characterized by intense worry about things that one would not normally worry about. In its generalized anxiety disorder form, the feeling of worry occurs much of the time with no identifiable reason. In its phobia form, the worry is related to a specific thing. In its post-traumatic stress disorder form, the anxieties are related to a specific or multiple specific traumatic incidents. This, of course, is a very general way to characterize anxiety disorders, and their specific formats are very complex and need to be addressed in unique ways. In general, persons with anxiety will show greater reassurance-seeking behavior. This is because their brains are in a state of arousal and they believe that there's danger, whether this is real or imagined. This is very frustrating for your spouse because from your perspective, you don't see the danger that they do. The reinsurance-seeking behavior is understandable as it's usually the result of anxious attachment style developed in childhood. These individuals require constant reassurance and affection to feel safe in their relationships. They perceive any lack of intimacy or affection as them being unworthy of love and they'll become extremely clingy as defense mechanism. This is an attachment style that I carry and I'm constantly working on it. We also perceive neutral facial expressions as being negative, so it takes a lot of internal battles to reason with what I lovingly call my crazy brain. Yes, the term is not the most politically appropriate, but I find a healthy sense of humor to be one of my best coping strategies in my own mental health journey. Those who experience frequent symptoms of anxiety will have difficulty keeping track of every element of a conversation, and they may find themselves disassociating from time to time. This means that they'll go off in their head or to another place in their mind. Often their thoughts are going so fast that it may make them appear distracted and uncaring. If they don't remember something you said, you may think that they don't even care about what you have to say. I promise that your loved one really does care about what you have to say and that they do wish they could focus their attention on you the way that you deserve. This issue is also present in those who are neurodivergent. Adult ADHD is a great example of a diagnosis that can cause challenges such as this in a relationship. Neurodivergent folks are some of the most creative, unique, and loyal individuals you'll ever meet. They're so much fun. They also have very unique brains, which can be challenging for someone who is not neurodivergent to understand. In fact, studies show that relationship failure rate is twice as high for those individuals with ADHD. Common symptoms of ADHD are distractibility, forgetfulness, impulsivity, and restlessness. These symptoms are very difficult for the non-ADHD partner to cope with, especially if their spouse is unwilling to get help. Accommodations in the romantic ADHD-affected relationships do need to be made to keep this ship sailing smoothly. Folks with ADHD often partner with people who are organized helpers. Super interesting. These helpers have a natural tendency to step in and to help out. The problem with doing this too much is that it creates a dependency in your partner. 
Routine and responsibility is very important in a successful outcome in these relationships. And doing too much takes away responsibility from your partner. So you start to step into a parental role and emotional issues can develop for you as a result. Doing too much can also lead to the belief in your ADHD partner that they're incapable of doing anything on their own. So they stop trying. They're absolutely capable. Try and avoid stepping into a parental role, though I understand why some may have the belief that if they don't do it, no one will. When the parental role is taken on, often the partner who is neurodivergent is approached in a critical manner, and this results in escalating anger and resentment between the couple. Realistically, as the spouse of someone with ADHD, you may end up having to take on more, especially if your strength is in organization. Have a critical look at your expectations and an honest discussion with your partner. What is realistic for them to accomplish in the run of a day? Household chores is a massive problem in many relationships, but interestingly, it seems to come up more often in those affected by ADHD. Maybe does your partner prefer to do a different chore? Is there a time of day they prefer to work in? It's important to make accommodations for your partner, but this does not mean that you allow yourself to be taken advantage of or mistreated. It's important to set strong, clear, and descriptive boundaries in your relationship. For more information on boundary setting in relationships, I'd advise you to check out uh, Season 2, Episode 5 of this podcast. I have it in a lot more detail there. Boundary setting is important in all relationships, but it's especially important when one member of the relationship has been diagnosed with a personality disorder. The DSM-5 classifies personality disorders under three groupings, cluster A, cluster B, cluster C. Each cluster has three to four individual diagnoses in the grouping that share certain qualities. For the purposes of the length of this episode, I'm only going to look at one of the more common ones, the cluster B diagnosis of borderline personality disorder. The DSM-5 says borderline personality disorder is characterized by unstable and intense interpersonal relationships, alternating between extreme idealization and extreme devaluation. I've often seen borderline personality confused with bipolar disorder. Bipolar disorder is characterized by extreme highs or manias and lows, depression, that's cycles. They're actually two different diagnoses. Borderline personality disorder is most often diagnosed in females, about 75% of the time. If you are the spouse or partner of someone with BPD, you may notice a high frequency of emotional, behavioral, and interpersonal dysregulation. Your partner may interpret your behaviors as being negative and may show increased aggression toward you as a result. Those with BPD are unable to hold two opposing ideas about one person at the same time. They're called dialectics. As an example, you can be really ticked at your partner for not doing the dishes, but you still love them. For those with borderline personality disorder, holding these two ideas at the same time is very difficult. This results in when they're angry with you, their brain is telling you them to hate you with everything they've got. And when they love you, they love you deeply and passionately. 
both of these states are completely valid for them and can change during the day, depending on the hour, quite quickly. Those with BPD are characterized by strong mood changes. This is not your fault. They just have very strong feelings when they're really attached to someone. They have very intense emotions. We see this in the negative emotions a lot. But also remember, it means that they feel positive emotions very strongly too. Their love and attachment to you will be very intense. They carry a fear of abandonment, and it makes them more unwilling or unlikely to leave uh, marriages and relationships, which can be problematic if they're victims of abuse. This strong fear of abandonment that characterizes borderline personality disorder means that they're scared of you leaving them every single day. This can result in a protective mechanism of them seeking validation. They may ask you a lot if you love them. They may ask you a lot if everything is okay. Just like I said before with anxiety, it's absolutely okay to give your partner the validation that they need. They may need a lot of extra validation during difficult conversations because those with BPD tend to have more difficulty with problem solving and critical discussions. It's important to give your partner as much notice as possible before having these critical conversations to allow them to prepare emotionally. I always encourage lots of positive affirmations and check-ins during the discussion. It's also important for you to know your own limitations. It's okay to take breaks from your partner for some self-care time, and it's okay to ask for help from trusted friends and family. There's some pretty solid general information that I can give you to help you and your partner have the healthiest relationship possible. And this goes for being in a relationship with someone with any sort of mental illness. First, communication is key. Be assertive and direct with stating your needs with your partner, but also hold intentional space to listen to your partner's needs, valuing them equally with your own. Have realistic expectations of your, of your spouse and of yourself. Sometimes it's hard to know what those are, but it leads me to recommend that you become more knowledgeable about your partner's mental health struggles. You can read books, listen to podcasts, do some Googling. It shows your partner that you're genuinely interested in them and knowledge is power. It can help you feel empowered. When making requests of your partner, try to limit your requests to one issue at a time. Those with mental illness have difficulty with the communication process to begin with, and they're battling their own minds while trying to meet your needs. State how your partner's behavior is affecting you. Not in an accusatory way, though. An accusatory way might be, you always treat me badly, or you're cruel to me. Instead, you could say, when you say blank, it makes me feel blank. When you do blank, it makes me feel blank. Say what's important to you for your partner to change. Please always begin and end the conversation on a positive note with an acknowledgement of your partner's good qualities or a validation of their internal experience. Prepare for negative responses from your partner and have a game plan. The negative response is your partner's brain fighting against this new way of communication. Try not to judge. Try not to change your partner's negative reaction. They're entitled to their feelings, and knee-jerk emotional reactions are a lot more difficult to control with mental illness. 
It takes a lot of practice and breaking down the conversation script. But when you guys get into a rhythm of communication, it can feel like a beautiful dance. Even if your partner goes off on what you feel is an unreasonable tangent, try your best to be a good listener. It's really important for them to be able to vocalize their thoughts. And sometimes this action is enough to draw their attention to the validity of the thoughts. There's some behaviors in mental illness that are especially challenging to address. And sometimes you really have to pick your battles. One is variable sleeping and eating habits. You absolutely want to make sure your loved one has their needs met, but significant changes in eating and sleeping are a very normal part of many mental illnesses. It may become just a new normal for your partner. Do watch for anything you consider to be extreme changes in sleep or eating, because extreme changes can indicate a serious resurfacing of your partner's symptoms, and you may need to seek professional help. Many behaviors that you see in your loved one are a direct symptom of their mental illness or as a result of them trying to cope with their mental illness. Asking them to stop some things outright might be an impossible ask. Your spouse cannot control their symptoms occurring, but what they can control is their reactions to those symptoms. I spoke before about the importance of boundary setting, but would like to expand on this just a bit further. When you set boundaries, your spouse likely won't respond positively to them at first. They might, but they may not, and they're likely going to test those boundaries. It feels like your partner doesn't respect you. It's important to discuss the boundaries in as much detail as possible, along with the explicit consequence of breaking those boundaries. This conversation should happen when you're both emotionally calm. An example from my research was a wife putting a boundary in place that if her husband didn't take his medication, he would either have to leave the home or she would leave the home with the children until he provided proof that he was taking it again. Keep in mind this was a situation where the husband could become violent when not taking his medication, but it's a boundary that's very fair and was put in place in a very calm way and it worked. I know I've said this a lot, but again, try and avoid stepping into a parental role with your partner. Absolutely involve your partner in big decisions. Many people unknowingly accept an underlying stigma that those with mental illness are unable to rationalize big decisions or unable to handle the stress of major life decisions. So they choose to leave them out. This is absolutely a fallacy. This does not mean that your partner gets to make major decisions when they're in an unstable period of their mental illness journey, but the diagnosis alone does not mean that they're incapable. Before you can decide how to support your spouse, you need to be able to understand how your partner is feeling. Look at, you look at them from your own healthy brain with your own lens that you see the world. They do not, and they cannot see the world the way you do. You might find it helpful to ask yourself, when I'm addressing my spouse, what is my goal? Imagine that you are struggling with the situation that they are. What would help you feel better? My spouse might actually be making realistic requests of me. It's very tempting to blame your spouse's expectations of you as being unreasonable because they have a mental illness and they're not thinking clearly. Maybe this is true at times, but assuming that your spouse doesn't know what's best for them because they struggle with mental illness is also unfair. 
Maybe your partner is making reasonable requests of you and you haven't stopped to consider them. If they become dysregulated during conversation with you, something may have triggered them that you may think has nothing to do with the conversation. When you're in a good space together, it can be really helpful to have an open discussion about triggers for certain emotions and behaviors so you can be aware of them. It can also build emotional intimacy to have a discussion about where these emotional triggers come from. Don't be afraid to ask your partner. In the moment, when you're triggered, what do you need me to do? I want to take a brief minute to speak about the importance of medications, but please know that I'm not a physician. Always consult with your doctor about your personal medication journey. I do have a lot of experience working with individuals who take these medications and a lot of experience providing helpful suggestions. Medications aren't for everyone. It's a personal choice. So if this paragraph doesn't resonate with you, take what serves you best here and just keep an open mind. Trying to pinpoint the exact reason that someone develops mental health issues is very tough. Development of mental health issues is always a combination of nature and nurture. And to treat mental illness, we need to look at it from a holistic lens, addressing the mental, physical, emotional, and spiritual aspects of yourself. Chemical imbalances in the brain are a big reason why mental health issues come out of the woodworks. It's absolutely vital that if you suspect yourself or your spouse to be struggling with mental health issues, you see your physician for a physical to rule out any medical concerns and to assess for the benefits of taking medication. In the depression anxiety spectrum, symptoms are usually treated with selective serotonin reuptake inhibitors, also known as SSRIs. Many people believe that SSRIs give you a false sense of happiness or they put things into your body that are bad for you and that are making you happy. This is a stigma of mental wellness medication. SSRIs actually help train your brain to keep the serotonin that's already in your body there for longer. They train your brain to keep what's already there longer. They're completely safe and they're very effective in treating anxiety and depression, especially when paired with counseling. They have a normal period of adjustment where initial side effects like headaches, dizziness, nausea, dry mouth, restlessness, and some others, they'll fade with time. Your doctor may ask you to begin on a low dose and then increase with time. This is called titration. When starting a new medication, it's really important that you drink lots of water, avoid alcohol, be aware of normal side effects that again will take time to adjust to, and to keep in contact with your doctor or nurse practitioner, letting them know if you feel a prescription increase is needed. This happens all the time. Not every SSRI works for everyone the first time or at the first dosage, so it may take time to find your sweet spot. The waiting and the side effects can be really frustrating, but try not to give up. The sweet spot is out there. Another tip is setting a reminder for yourself a couple of weeks before your prescription is about to expire to make an appointment for a refill. This will leave you without the panic of discovering that you have a couple of days worth of meds and your prescription is going to run out. This has happened to me so many times and I kick myself every time. 
If the side effects of your medication are really worrying for you or trigger a worsening of depression or anxiety symptoms, please seek help immediately. A word of caution about benzodiazepines. These are medications like Ativan and Xanax. These meds are sedating and are very good when someone is living in a time of crisis or is managing panic attacks. These medications are really great when they're used responsibly and according to prescription, but are highly addictive and you can build a tolerance to them. They are not meant to be used daily. They're not meant to be used for long periods of time. If you're needing a medication for long periods of time, it's important to talk to your doctor and get on something that's safe and designed to be taken every day. Medications for mental illness like bipolar disorder, ADHD, and psychosis are very important and must be taken regularly. It's really important that folks who carry these diagnoses have regular appointments scheduled with their family doctor and psychiatrist or psychologist. Stopping these medications without medical support can be very dangerous and is not recommended to do on your own. These medications often require routine blood work to ensure no damage is taking place in your body and routine follow-up as dosage changes are very normal. There's a lot more information I could give you on medications, but it would need a lot of time to really cover the information properly, so I hope there's something here that helps you out. I want to end today by talking about caregiver burnout. It's very real and it's very serious. In all studies that I've looked at, negative relationship outcomes for partners are more likely if you have a spouse struggling with their mental health. More worries were reported by both members of the relationship and more incidences of conflict. When a loved one is first diagnosed with a mental illness or you find out about their mental illness for the first time, there's a range of feelings that you might feel from guilt to anger to sadness. Really, it's a mourning process for you because you're mourning the loss of the relationship that you envisioned. These feelings are all valid. There is an understandable frustration when looking at your future and all of the extra challenges to the relationship. I want to repeat again, every feeling you have right now is valid. You have a right to your feelings. You also have a right to control your expression of those feelings. Reinforce with yourself that your partner has a mental illness and that you have no control over their behavioral symptoms. All you have control over here is how you think, you feel, and your actions. When we love someone, we set very high expectations of how we'll care for them, and we take on a lot of responsibility for things that aren't ours to take. If your partner has a mental illness, do everything that you can to understand it. To better know what your partner lives with every day. Like I mentioned before, reading, YouTube, webinars, self-help. The way that you can help them is to learn as much as you can about their mental illness so you can be the best advocate and support for them possible. Violent and abusive behaviors from your partner should never be tolerated by you, even if they are part of the mental illness. For some major mental illnesses, regressions are marked by engaging in destructive or risk-taking behaviors. It's important that you know where your limits are and you put boundaries in place consistently when your spouse has crossed those limits. The best way to care for yourself is to balance your needs and your spouse's needs. 
You can't be operating on an empty fuel tank. It's okay to say no. It's okay to take care of yourself. The best way I've ever heard caregiver burnout described is by renowned mental health speaker Jody Carrington. Honestly, check out her stuff if you get the chance. She is fabulous. Jody Carrington. Anyway, she says that when you're struggling with caregiver burnout, your give a shit meter is gone. <laughs> I just love that description. Your give a shit meter is gone. What this means is that your internal flame of compassion that's usually ignited is either burning low or gone. Uh, it's also called compassion fatigue. It's kind of a part of caregiver burnout. You feel a profound sense of exhaustion and sometimes apathy when thinking about caring for your loved one. These feelings are serious and valid. And if you suspect that you might be struggling with caregiver burnout, please seek out help for yourself. Your spouse loves you very much and needs to know that you're cared for as well. You guys have an awesome relationship together, a beautiful future, a bright future. And I just want to wish everyone the best of luck that they that I can. Thank you for listening today, and I hope that you enjoy this episode. For more information on helping your loved one with their mental wellness journey, please check out the resources I've posted in the show notes. You can also reach out to your local branch of the Canadian Mental Health Association, who have lots of self-help and educational information about various mental health concerns. Take good care of yourself, and thank you for entering my brave space today.